So a little tie-in with that song. We're going to be talking about victory today. So our passage this morning is found in Philippians chapter 3, just five verses, uh, verses 12 through 16. And we're going to take these verses in the order as we uh, uh, preach from them. So if you have your Bible, just leave it open, and we'll refer to the verses as we go through the message this morning. So this morning we want to look at seven keys to a victorious Christian life. And if you count them, there are seven keys there in that picture. I'm going to ask you a question first before we get started. What is the most money you have ever spent on lunch? Somebody just, the most money you've ever spent on lunch? Somebody, $10? No, Ed? Just for you. $50, okay. So no, Ed, maybe 50. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you this. Um, suppose you were to invite me out to dinner and you wanted to take me to some place, what is the most you would spend on me? <laughs> you don't have to answer the question. <laughs> yeah, five dollars. <laughs> I don't even. I don't even know if you can get a subway at that point. Yeah, no. Depending on how hungry you are. Thank you. All right. Well, <clears throat> would you spend? $4,567,888 on lunch. Last Monday, June 3rd of this year, a 28-year-old man named Justin Sun paid this outrageous sum of money for lunch, $4,567,888. Now, in fairness, it's not just for him, it's for Justin and seven of his friends. And in order to eat this lunch, he has to buy a plane ticket and fly across the country to New York City and uh, drive down to uh, Midtown Manhattan and eat lunch at a steakhouse called Smith and Walensky. And so I looked up the menu, the lunch menu for this place, and the highest price lunch on the menu was only $49. Now that sounds like an outrageous amount. I would not spend $49 on lunch, even if it was steak. I just wouldn't do it. But that's the highest price on the menu. And I think to myself, why would Justin's son pay over $4.5 million to eat there? Well, it's not about the steak. And the reason I say that, I looked at the ratings of the place. And if I look at, you know, Zillow, not Zillow, but I mean uh, Yelp and all those places, it's like, three and a half to four stars. And I think, wow, I could get steak here in the Bay Area that has a better rating than that for a lot less money. So why would he spend that much money? Justin's son paid that amount so that he could have lunch with this man, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett is the world's third richest man. I can't imagine what the lunch would cost if they were auctioning it off for the first uh, or the, the, the first richest man. But what does Justin's son hope to gain from having lunch with this man? Ultimately, he wants to increase his own net worth, and he believes that Warren Buffett has the keys to earning um, a lot of money and to the keys to a wealthy life. And Justin wants to know what those keys are. If he could just have those keys and apply it to his own life, 
Maybe he could be the next third richest person in the world. Uh, Justin wants to be, and this is just how I want to start, Justin wants to be more like Warren Buffett. Now, in our message this morning, it has nothing to do with, with becoming the next billionaire. Warren Buffett, is estim his estimated net worth is $82.5 billion. He's 88 years old. That means that he is 18 years past his expiration date. He's living on borrowed time. And I can assure you of this one thing, that he is not taking any of that $88.5 billion with him into eternity. And all of his riches combined will not purchase for him one day in heaven. What I want to look at today, instead of becoming the next billionaire, is seven keys to the victorious Christian life. If I could sit down with someone who had successfully lived a victorious Christian life, and I could ask him or her, what are the keys that you followed to live a victorious Christian life? The answer would be priceless. And then I would have a pattern to follow. I would have the keys, and I could apply them to my life. And then I could live a victorious Christian life. How much would that lunch be worth to you? Well, I'll tell you right now, it's free. For the Apostle Paul is that man, and he has, in these five short verses that we're studying today, he shares seven keys to a victorious Christian life. It's the life he lived, and it's the life we can live, too, as believers. So the first key is just two words, press on, press on. And we see this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. So a quick refresher may, may help here. Um, what on earth is he talking about? I haven't already attained. I'm not already perfect. I press on. What is he talking about? So if we think back at last week's message, David did a great job of introducing Philippians 3 for us last week. And he reminded us of the necessity of preaching the gospel message um, because the more we hear it, the more it keeps us from false teaching. And um, the false teaching that was so prominent in Paul's day is just as prominent today. The teaching goes something like this. Do good works. And if you do enough good works, God will weigh your good against your bad. And if your good outweighs your bad, you're in heaven. And if it doesn't, you're in hell. That is not the gospel. Okay? That is a false gospel, and it is, the, it is a false gospel that most people believe. If you were to stop a person on the street and ask them, are you going to heaven? Most people would say yes. And if you were to ask them, what is the reason you're going to be in heaven? Most of them would say something like this. I've lived a good life. I've gone to church. My father was a preacher. I read the Bible once, you know, something along those, something that they did. But that is not the gospel. And if a person is trusting in that for their salvation, they're really lost. 
And so Paul spoke against that last, as we looked at it last week. Um, and it is what Paul believed prior to him becoming a Christian. Paul had full confidence in his religion, in his religious practices, in his race, in his heritage, in his biblical studies, in his membership as a Pharisee, his zeal. All of that, he thought, was, was what was essential to make him acceptable before God. He thought that he could make himself righteous before God. And Paul writes in verses 7 through 11, But what things were gain to me, what he thought was gain, these I have counted loss for Christ, and count them as rubbish or as dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. As long as he tried to be good enough, um, he would never be considered righteous before God. And if you're trying this morning to be good enough before God and earn your way to heaven by being good, you're lost. But you can be saved this morning. Salvation is not based on our good works. Salvation is based on faith in what Jesus Christ has already done for us on the cross. He died for you. He paid the penalty for your sin. And it is through his death on the cross that we are saved. And so Paul is saying here that righteousness does not come from our own good works, but righteousness comes by faith or through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are some people, some Christians, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they actually believe that the moment they trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, their sins were forgiven, that's true, and that they have become perfect. They really believe that. And they be it's called um, sinless perfection. I, um, I had a relative who was involved in a church that taught this, a sinless perfection, that if you just trust in the Lord, you will no longer have sin, you will no longer have temptation, you will simply live a perfect life the rest of your life. Sinless perfection. And I have known people who actually believed that they were perfect, sinless. And I usually ask them a question. Do you mind if I speak to your wife about that? Or do you mind if I ask your husband how you're doing with all of that? It's just not true. We are not sinlessly perfect. And I think what happens is that people misunderstand what the scriptures teach, and they take their practice and they say, yeah, we're perfect in our practice. It's not true. So the first key to a victorious Christian life is to understand the difference between our position in Christ and our practice. The moment we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, God declares us righteous in his sight. God declares us righteous. He says, you are justified, declared righteous. When Abraham was taken out um, by the Lord, and he looked at the stars of the heaven, and the Lord said, I'm going to give you as many children as there are stars in the heaven. It says, and Abraham believed God, and God credited to him righteousness. That, at that very moment. The fact that he believed God, that was what God used as a uh, means of justifying him um, at that very moment. He declared him righteous. 
Did Abraham sin after that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God declares you righteous, holy, perfect. Do we live that way? No, we are far from that. And so we have a position before in Christ, before God, that is absolutely perfect. And we're living somewhere in here. And the goal of the believer is to conform our practice more and more towards our position in Christ. And it's a lifelong process. And we're never going to arrive at it in this life. Doesn't mean we can't try, but it, we're never going to arrive at it in this life. We're never going to be sinlessly perfect in this life. There's a difference between our position and our practice. The moment we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, God declares us righteous. We are perfect in his sight. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says you are holy. That's your position in Christ. But the same Bible says be holy. So you are holy, as far as God is concerned, there's nothing more that needs to be done as far as your salvation is concerned. He has declared you righteous. But as far as your practice day by day, he says be holy, okay? That's something active that we need to, we need to participate in. We need to actively participate in becoming holy. So if you're honest and clear-headed, you know that you still sin. And every day our practice should become more and more like our position. Paul says, that's why he says here in this, in this section, not that I have already attained. So even Paul himself is saying, not that I have already attained. I haven't reached perfection or am already perfected, but I press on. In 1 John 3, 2, it says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Can I honestly look in the mirror every, every morning and say, Don, you are just like Jesus. Could you do that? You are just like Jesus. I wish I could. I wish I could say that. Instead, could you look in the mirror and say, Don, you are becoming more and more like Jesus every day. I hope we can say that much. I hope I can say that much, that I am becoming more and more like him. But when we see him, when we finally get to heaven, when we see him, we shall be like him, or we shall see him as he is. So press on to live a victorious Christian life by understanding, first of all, the difference between your position and your practice. And every day, move one step closer to your position in Christ. Look at the mirror tomorrow and say to yourself, okay, today, I want to take one step closer to being like the Lord Jesus. The second key, Paul says in uh, verse 12, lay hold. So let's read it. Not, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Thirty years before Paul wrote this letter, he was on the road to Damascus with letters in hand authorizing him to arrest any Christian 
um, that he found and to imprison them. His goal was to destroy the church. But on the way, he was blinded by a light from heaven and he fell on his face on the ground and he heard a voice calling out, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And it was Jesus speaking from heaven to Saul or to Paul and um, he fell on the ground and he was shaken to the core. But that day, Jesus laid hold of Paul and saved his soul. Jesus took possession of him. And Paul recounts that day in verse 12 and says, Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And so you ask the question, why did Jesus take this person? Why did Jesus choose Paul? Why did he save him? What was the purpose? And Paul says that he wants, well, I mean, the purpose was so that he might become like Christ. Christ-likeness is the key um, in this passage. And Paul says, I want to lay hold of that. In other words, I want to be Christ-like. That's why he saved me. And so if Jesus Christ laid a hold of me on the, on the road to Damascus, it was for the purpose of making me more like Christ. I want to lay hold of that. I want to possess that. It was 40 years ago that Christ Jesus laid hold of me. And he took possession of me for the same reason he took possession of Paul. It's so that I might become like Christ. And it's the same reason he saved you. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, there's one reason that he saved you, and that is to make you more like himself. He wants you to be like himself. God wants to populate heaven with people just like Jesus. And whether Jesus Christ laid hold of you a month ago or he laid hold of you 60 years ago, he took possession of you so that you might become more like Christ. And that's the second key to victorious Christian life, is to take possession of what Christ is doing in your life. And so that, what does that mean? Well, it means every time you make a decision, every time you make a choice, ask yourself, what would Jesus do in this circumstance? What would Jesus say to this person that I'm mad at? What is the most Christ-like choice I can make in this circumstance here and now? What's the, what would Jesus do? What would he say? How would he live? How would he react to this? And so that's the kind of mentality, mindset, that we should have all through the day, every day, throughout our lives. And it's not about law-keeping. There's no law involved here at all. It's not about obeying a law. It's, it's about becoming like the one who loved us and took us for himself. What would he do? What would he say? So key number two to the victorious Christian life is to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. He saved you for a purpose, and that purpose was to make you more like himself. So what's, what's the um, takeaway from this? Uh, every day, make one choice that is more Christ-like than the day before. Now, if you looked at your life, just think back of your life today or yesterday and say, was there any time throughout the day 
where I really regret the way I acted. I really regret the way I spoke to a person. I really regret this or that or the other thing. You say, how could I have acted more like Christ in that situation? Well, that's what you need to do today. Just change the way you've acted, change the way you've behaved, change what you've said, and be more like Christ. You say, well, I can't. Yes, you can, because God gives us the power to do that. That's his goal. That's his purpose in saving us, so that you'll become more like the one you love. Key number three, forget those things which are behind. In Philippians 3.13, it says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and we're going to stop there, Many Christians never live a victorious Christian life. And it's because they are stuck in the past. Are you stuck in the past today? They come to a place in their lives where they see that they're sinners, that they need a Savior, they trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, and they never get past that point. They come, they continue to focus on their past and on their sin. And so Paul is saying here that we need to forget the sins of the past. It's like looking at a sewer manhole cover. You know what's down there, and it's awful, and it's gross. And you come to this sewer manhole cover, and you stop, and you think about your life, and you spend time um, in, in, in your thinking and you're worrying about how bad you were. And he said, if, if I just pull back this cover and look down there, I'll see how bad I was. Why would you do that? Do you concentrate on the addictions that you had? Do you think of how unholy or how sinful you were? Believers, don't concentrate on how bad you were, but think about how good Jesus is and Jesus was in saving your soul. Don't focus on your sins, but focus on your Savior. Don't dwell on all your failings. Instead, confess your sins and appropriate the victory that you have in Jesus Christ. Forget the sins of the past. Do you live your life as if you're walking down the street and every time you come across the sewer manhole cover, you look, you lift the lid up and you look down inside and go, oh, gross, and it stinks. If you go through life looking back at your sin, it stinks. There's nothing good about our sin, nothing. There's no redeeming quality to our sin, and it stinks, and you'll never Enjoy victory in your Christian walk if you keep concentrating on where you came from, what your sin was, okay? Leave it in the past. You say you have faith that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, and he's already cleansed you by his blood, and he is the same one who washes your feet from daily soiling of sin too. The Bible says that if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has removed your sin, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. And your sins and iniquities, he says, I will remember 
no more. Do you have faith to believe that? That's one of the keys to a victorious Christian life, forgetting the sins of the past. But I, I think Paul is speaking of more than just forgetting about sins. I think he's, he's talking here about forgetting about our accomplishments too. Forgetting the accomplishments of the past. Not only are we to forget the sins of our youth, Paul is speaking about forgetting our accomplishments. In his BC days, that is before Christ days, Paul boasted in his accomplishments. He boasted in his heritage. He boasted in his pedigree. He boasted in his academic and spiritual degrees. But after he was saved, he says, when I look back at all of my accomplishments, it amounts to a great big zero. Nothing. In fact, he, he literally calls it cow manure. He said, that's what it is. Everything that I thought was gain, it's cow dung. That's what it is. And so if you want to have a victorious Christian life, you not only have to leave your sin in the past, but you have to leave your accomplishments there too. Those things that you hoped would make you more acceptable before God are actually weights that you cannot carry in the Christian race. Sometimes even looking back at great accomplishments will cost you the race. 1954 was a time in history when people thought it was impossible for any man to run a mile in less than four minutes. And uh, on June 21st, 1954, at an international track meet in Finland, two competitive runners, Roger Bannister and John Landy, achieved this elusive goal of running with times of just under four minutes. Bannister was actually the first one to come across the line and followed by Landy. Both times were less than four minutes. It was a remarkable uh, historical event at that time. And it was later that same year that uh, in August of 1954 that there was a world competition. It was actually the British Empire and Commonwealth Games held in Vancouver, Canada. And I come from Vancouver, and there's actually a um, statue of the two men running this particular race. Uh, the race is now known as the Miracle Mile, or the race of the century, and it is the race that is commemorated by this bronze statue of the two men at the most critical part of the race. What stands out about this race is that Australian John Landy was running against his rival, Roger Bannister, once again. And Landy's goal uh, in this race was to beat Bannister's time and to seize the world title of the fastest runner of the one-mile race. And Landy started out strong right from the beginning. And so in the track at that time, in order to do a mile, you had to go around the track four times. And Landy was ahead in the first lap. And Landy was ahead in the second lap. And Landy was ahead in the third lap. And he was making great time. And Roger Bannister was behind him the entire time. And as he went around the, the fourth time, as he came around the fourth curve towards the finish line, he could see the finish line in front of him. And as he came to the, the straight stretch, he looked back, and you can see it in the picture. Uh, I don't know if you can see it or not. Just enough. He, he turned his head to the left to see where Bannister was, and he didn't see him. And all he could see 
was where he had been for the last three and three-quarter laps. Landy looked over his left shoulder to see where Bannister was. Just as Bannister passed him on the right-hand side, Landy was looking back at his accomplishments, and in doing so, he lost the race to Bannister. Later, Landy said, while Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt for looking back. I am probably the only one ever turned into bronze for looking back. Paul says, forget those things which are behind. And if we want to be victorious in our Christian life, we need to resist the temptation to look back at our sin and to look back at our accomplishments. We need to forget those things which are behind. Key number four, reach forward to those things which are ahead. Brethren, I do not, verse 13, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Paul often uses the illustration of a foot race in the scripture, and he compares it to the Christian life. You may remember some of these verses in Acts 20, uh, verse 24, he said to the uh, elders who met with him that his goal was to finish my course, and it really was finish my race. In 1 Corinthians 9, he wrote to the Corinthians, and he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. Galatians 5, 7, Paul asked the Galatian church, you were running well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? And near the end of his life, Paul says, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Brothers and sisters, we are in a race. The Christian life is like a foot race, and it does matter how we run it. If you seek the prize, you need to run well in the race, and you need to run all the way to the finish line. We need to reach forward to those things which are ahead. But you know, I admit it, it's, it's so easy to become distracted. You're running the race, and, and there are things to the right side, and there are things to the left side, and there are things that are distracting in life, and sometimes we forget we're even in the race. And um, it's easy to become distracted with the world and everything around us, and we lose sight of the finish line. I think this is best illustrated by a race, uh, a steeplechase race that took place in 2015, and it was between... University of Oregon senior Tanguay Pepiot and University of Washington's uh, Miran Simon. And they were reaching forward, and, and it was uh, Pepiot who was well ahead uh, in the race. You can see in the picture, this was actually a snapshot of a, of a race, and you can't see the whole picture. They've, he's already finished the jumping over the hurdles. He's already uh, gone past the last corner. He is now just steps away from the finish line. I mean, he is so close. And the guy in front is Pepiot. He is from uh, Oregon, University of Oregon. And you see his hand up in the air. And what he's doing, the, 
the, in the final stretch, the picture shows he has a very clear lead. He approaches the finish line, and he's distracted because he wants the crowd in the stadium to cheer for his upcoming victory. Look at me, folks. I'm ahead, and I'm ahead by a long distance. Cheer me on, cheer me on, cheer me on, as he's running down the track. And he waves his arm to urge the crowd to cheer louder for him. And as he concentrates on the crowd, to his shock, well, let's watch the video. Take my word for it, there's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tanche Pepio. He's getting the crowd, he wants the crowd to cheer his performance, and at the end he gets picked. He gets picked by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. You can, if you will, you see his face, and you know no one has to say anything. They don't have to explain it to him, he'll never make that mistake again. One-tenth of a second. Boasting of, look at my accomplishments, people. Cheer for me. And as he gets passed by, his face is priceless. It's <laughs> shocking. What is ahead for us? What's the finish line for us? What's the goal that we're running toward? It's heaven. It's the prospect of seeing Jesus. It's the hope of being with him and being like him. It's being conformed to the image of his son. It's being made perfectly holy. It is the completion of our salvation. We will be Christ-like. That's the goal. That's what we're, that's what we're running towards. That's the, the end in sight. And so that brings us to key number five. Press toward the goal for the prize. In Philippians 3.14 it says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In the Olympic Games, <clears throat> there was only one winner per race. They did not distribute gold and silver and bronze medals. There was one winner, and that was it. Only one winner got the prize. And that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, run in such a way that you may win. Run in such a way that you may win. The Olympic prize, it was an olive wreath. The prize for winning was an olive wreath made from a wild olive tree growing near the temple of Zeus. And the winner of this prize um, was called to the judgment seat at where the judges sat. And the winner would be crowned with the olive wreath, the crown of victory. That was the prize. And Paul says here, press toward the goal for the prize. Thankfully, the Lord is not going to give us an olive wreath that's going to fade away and uh, be destroyed ultimately. But let me say this to you believers. You have not finished the race yet. But you are running it now. Every day you are running in this race. Run for the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. The prize is to be like Christ. Christ-likeness is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And when you cross the finish line of your life, or the Lord raptures you to heaven, whichever comes first in your life, um, you will finally reach your goal. You will be called home to heaven, and you will ultimately be called to the judgment seat of Christ, and he will award you the prize of a race run well, if you're running the race well. The prize before us is to be like Christ. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then there are many rewards that the Lord offers uh, us in the scripture. There are, are, are rewards for those who were persecuted for the sake of the Lord. There are rewards for those who were treated like the prophets for the sake of the Lord. There are rewards for those who serve the Lord well. And there are crowns, not like the fading wreath of the olive branch, but valuable crowns. And Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. He's saying, look, I'm almost near death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. That's a marvelous thing that Paul recognized that when he was finally called to the judgment seat, he would be given a crown of righteousness. Be nice if we got one too, huh? Well, it says, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That crown is available to you too. Key number six, have this mind. Philippians 3.15, therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. What mind? What mind is Paul speaking of? It is the single, pure desire to be like Christ. That's, that's it. To have that mind, to be like Jesus. Paul began this subject back in chapter 2 when he stated, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And as you read through that passage, you realize very quickly that the mind of Christ is a mind of humility. Jesus Christ is God. And he did not think that equality with God was something to be grasped. But he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He humbled himself for you and for me. The mind of Christ is a mind of humility. He humbled himself to the point of death. Do you remember at the Last Supper when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die? And he stood up at the end of the supper and he put on himself the apron of a servant. And he got down before the disciples and he washed their dirty, filthy feet. He humbled himself and washed their feet. And Peter said, you can't wash me. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash you, you're not going to be clean. Well, not just my feet, of course. You know, he's trying to, you know, say, well, I didn't mean that. I meant you need to wash all of me. And uh, Jesus said, look, those who are cleansed are cleansed once. When, when he's, and it's a metaphor. He's saying, look, the salvation that you're about to receive by me dying on the cross is your cleansing. You are cleansed from head to foot. You are made perfect. You are made holy. You are made right. You're just. You're holy. All that. But as we walk through this life in our practice, our feet get dirty with the sin of ourselves and the sin around us. And Jesus washes our feet even on a daily basis, a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And he humbled himself to wash 
their feet. And the Lord still humbles himself to wash our feet today when we come to him for cleansing from the defilement of our sins. Jesus, uh, or Paul says here in this passage, have this mind, have this mind in you. Is being like Christ your goal in life? What's your goal in life? Think about it. It should be, I want to be like Christ. That should be your goal. Everything else really doesn't matter. I want to be like Christ. So if that's your goal, then Paul is really saying that you're mature. He says, therefore let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. If you're mature, you will have this mind of humility in you. Thinking more of others, thinking of others is more important than you think of yourself. You will be like Christ. In John 13, Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. This is what it means to be Christ-like. Can you say that about your life? Are you mature in the Christian life? And as I think about being Christ-like, I think, I'm far from mature. I'm far from the maturity that he's talking about here. Being Christ-like? But that is the goal. That is the prize. That is what is before me. When I am irritated with someone or angry or my thoughts are more about me than others, I see how unchristlike I am. I see how far I am from washing my brother's feet or my sister's feet. And whenever my thinking falls short, as Paul is describing here, if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. What it means is this, that when we see, when we fall short of being Christ-like, the Lord is very faithful in bringing that to our attention. You know, usually he'll convict us of sin, of, of, of our attitudes or of our behavior. Sometimes we'll read the scripture and go, oh, Lord, I have fallen far, so far short of what you have asked me to do. Or sometimes we will see believers who really are Christ-like. I mean, they really have, are so far down the path, so much further than me. And I watch them and I see them and I go, wow, they are so Christ-like. I need to be like them. I need to be like Christ. And the Lord is faithful in revealing that to us. So make it your goal this week to stop and to think about every action and ask yourself, was that really Christ-like? And the Lord will often show us through his word or through teaching or other believers, you know, whether or not it was. Um, walk by the same rule Paul says, be of the same mind. This is the, fi the uh, final key. Uh, verse 16 says, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Well, none of us has, has, have fully attained uh, Christ-likeness, but I will say that some of you are a lot further down the road than I am. Just because there are people who are more Christ-like than me should not discourage me. And if there are people that are more Christ-like than you, that shouldn't discourage you. Paul is encouraging us in verse 16 to walk, 
to the degree that we have already attained. That really means this, walk in the light that God has already given you. If God has shown you an area in your life where it's not Christ-like, then work on that area first. That's the light before you. Deal with that first. And then as you walk and you become more Christ-like in that area, you'll have more light. He'll give you more light um, in the days ahead. The Bible is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. And you may not be able to see the finish line yet, but you can see steps in front of you, a few steps in front of you. Walk in the light that you already have, and more will be given to you. And that should be the same mind each of us has. We should be competing with each other, you know, of how much more we can be Christ-like. It's not that kind of a competition, though, okay? But the goal is the same for each one of us, and we should all have that same mind. Lord, this morning, I want to ask you to make me like Jesus Christ. Make me like your son. Seize every opportunity to be more and more like Jesus, because we know that's his goal, and we know that's the prize that is waiting for us at the end. Pursue this goal with all your heart. You say, well, I don't know what steps to take. Right here. Thy word is a light to my path, a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And follow whatever degree of truth you already have, and he will give you more light. Well, we looked at seven keys. I hope they were helpful to you this morning. That if I could sum them all up into one thing, it's very, very simple. Be like Jesus. Live Christ-like. And that's really the goal. That is ultimately all seven uh, fit into that one category of becoming more and more like Jesus. Do you want that in your life? Do you want to be more like him? Then pursue it. It's available to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and the one who um, demonstrated such humility in coming to this world and dying for our sins. And Lord, we want to become more like him. And it's easy to say that, Lord, but so often we are distracted by the cheering around us or by things that really don't matter. We look back, Lord, instead of looking forward and looking at the prize and looking at the goal and looking at the finish line. And Lord, we just pray that you would remove the distractions from us that we may see Christ and be more like him day by day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.